0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from rust
2: Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast, I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week I talked to Laurie Penny and Caroline Crampton about the BBC zombie drama In the Flesh, Tom Gatti talks to author Mark Haddon, and I chat to Ian Stebbins about wearable technology. I'm joined by our contributing editor, Laurie Penny, and our web editor, Caroline Crampton, to talk about the zombie drama In the Flesh. If you've missed it, it's on BBC iPlayer at the moment, and the second series will start in May. Um, Laurie, you were the one who got me into this, actually. I've only watched Mm -hmm. the first episode, but you and Caroline, I know, have watched the first series. And you've also seen a preview of the second series. series. So um, explain the premise to us.
3: The premise is um, very different from your standard shoot up zombie drama and it centers on a uh, young recovered zombie or pds sufferer partially deceased syndrome sufferer as we're supposed to call them now it's the so it's all very term. kind of pc it's all so... very pc and it's it's the premise is that zombies can be cured um, with medication, they can lead relatively normal lives, and they're being returned to the community. And it centres on a small rural community in Yorkshire, I believe, uh, called Roart and a fictional community which has been a centre of resistance to the zombie uprising. And now they're having to deal with these recovered PDS sufferers, zombies coming back into the community. And the and the protagonist is uh, is one of those uh, one of those recovered sufferers, and it's and it goes from there. But it turns out like all the best BBC dramas of that kind, not to be about zombies at all. It's actually about what makes us human and the nature of prejudice.
2: And Caroline, it's quite unusual, isn't it, in that you're essentially seeing it from Kieran, who's the protagonist, is this former zombie. You're seeing it from the zombie's point of view. And, you know, one of the reasons that zombie uh, video games particularly have become much more of uh, the kind of the mainstream is that we've become kind of slightly angsty about shooting, even Nazis, sh- shooting human beings in the face. So it's, uh-huh. it, there was a movement towards alien races right mm-hmm. and now we've got to this stage where it's either vampires or zombies. Now, zombies are just mm-hmm. fodder. So how much do you think that this is that was an interesting creative decision and how much do you feel inside Kieran's sort of struggle? What's What makes him an interesting character? It's really,
4: really interesting because it does exactly the opposite of what you just said there and it turns the zombies back into people. Mm. And, and there's a moment in, I think, the first or second episode of the first series where uh, a sort of returned pds sufferer i um, think we can, can say, can say, zombies. We can say zombie but of course pds or they say rotters um, rotters is the kind of colloquial local term for it and um one of the uh one of the people who are part of the kind of resistance movement who tried to protect the community threatens one of the zombies and she looks up at him down the barrel of his gun and there's this awful moment of like she's both someone that you've known all your life but also not anyone you've known. Can you really shoot her?
2: And there's this awful tension as well about people who've obviously experienced huge loss, mm-hmm. and and, mm-hmm. and and in that moment, you know, obviously all of them will have thought, God, I would do absolutely anything to have this person back yes. again.
4: And then, but like this, I mean, but yeah, you get
2: yeah. a sort of half version, and they can't eat, yes. and and they have to wear kind of dreadful like tv makeup spray tan and oh, contact the makeup is
3: wonderful we were saying weren't we I, I think they should have been nominated obviously it was nominated for two BAFTAs I think it should have been nominated for makeup as well because the way it convincingly manages to make it look like they're wet, they're they've got Artificial, dead skin but yeah. are wearing makeup on top of it to hide it it's amazing I really liked all those kind of
4: um Kind of procedural, organisational bits of it as well. Sort of like that. All the all the zombies had gone to a special place to recover, and yes. then when they leave, they get given their contact lenses so they can have human-looking eyes. so They don't yeah. look too creepy, and they get but only
2: blue or brown. So yeah. that was one of the things I thought was wonderful about it. Was it kind of got the essential crapness of bureaucracy? Mm, yeah. Oh, it's
3: so the NHS, isn't it? It's <laughs> a massive parody of the NHS, but done very, very lovingly in that you have these sort of incompetent but very well-meaning. people everyone's just muddling through, which is kind of I think yeah. far
2: more real than ever. Everybody being a kind of macho yeah. he man, or... and in
3: every scene, it's like I think you said there's there's not a dud note in it, but in every scene, you you think, oh yeah, that's what would happen in that situation. What would happen if Grandma came back mm-hmm. as a recovered zo- zombie? What would happen? I mean, obviously there is a there's a precedent for um, stories about zombie stories told from the zombie's point of view. I mean, you didn't just have. Um, uh, there's, there was a book recently, Breathers, there was that movie with Nicholas Holton, and then there's also, without giving too many spoilers away, there's uh, I Am Legend, the uh, classic sci-fi book, but um, it, the idea of zombies uh, get, casting things from the zombie's point of view is, is quite transgressive because, as Helen said, it's the idea of zombies is they are whatever you fear. They're the shambling masses. They're the working class. The original, you know, massive selling zombie films came out at the time of the civil rights movement. They're the shambling hordes who have no brains and you just have to shoot them and kill them because that's how you survive. And turning that around is massively, massively interesting and powerful.
2: And it's interesting you mentioned class because I hadn't really thought of that. Mm. I saw this more as as a reflection of immigration because there is a kind of feeling of... You know, we don't want these people among us. This is this yes. is a this is a, a homogenous town. And then the other obvious echo is the idea of kind of care in the community and about the idea of people who are seriously mentally ill. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very good um, metaphor that this explores as well because it's talking to people who are absolutely fine now but have the potential. So if they don't get these injections every day, then they kind of start ravening mm. and slobbering again. We're talking
3: about zombies, not mentally insane. Yeah, no, I
2: <laughs> that very clear. But it's, it's, so it explores the idea of how much can you restrict people's individual liberties and how much can you ask a community to have people among them who are unpredictable? And how do you mm. cope with that? And the dynamics that you see are, I think, you know, very realistic about how people feel the other one that kind of springs to mind is the is the pedophile panic and the idea about yeah. how do you feel about you know wanting to have a register of all the child abusers who are in your in your village um so it tackles some incredibly meaty subjects mm. but caroline it's not didactic is it
4: no, not remotely. There's and there's also enough contradiction within it, and the characters themselves feel conflicted about it. That you don't feel like there's a very obvious lesson being passed on to you. Yeah. Like the main character, Kieran, he um he meets some people at the kind of rehab place he goes to, who uh, who are also zombies, who were also think, who are thinking about well, maybe this is just who we are now. They well, are very maybe, into that liberation. Yeah, maybe, maybe we should we should embrace it maybe we should stop taking our medication and just if this is how it is this is how it is
2: which is an idea that you see again in in things like true blood you have the Mm. kind of vampires who want to assimilate and you have the vampires who believe that their, you know their true nature is always one way they Mm. want to be wild Mm. um but i think what this shows to me is that i mean i made this defense last week um about star trek is that science, science fiction is still just the best way of exploring really deep Social issues, yeah. without it turning into being thumped over the head with a kind of yeah. guardian mm. column, right? Yeah,
3: and uh, without wanting to give away too many spoilers, again, it's all. It turns out that *In the Flesh* is all about, among other things, it's about small town prejudice, it's about homophobia, it's about being a teenager and the difficulties of that, and it's 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 about everything apart from zombies, which I love, and, and I think uh, Dominic Mitchell, the writer, definitely deserves. Uh, the BAFTA he's been nominated for. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. The second series looks to be very exciting because it explores, as uh, Caroline said, the um, that resistance movement idea. Mm. The uh, I think the Undead Liberation Army is it ULA? Yeah, yeah. And they go into more of more of that. And it's six episodes rather than three episodes. Like the first oh, that's good. Series I didn't realise that. So yeah, they yeah,
2: yeah, it. it. It's funny because you talk about the idea of having sort of teenage lead characters, and that justifies it being a BBC Three commission, which was originally. And I think the same thing about um being human, if you remember, yes. the, mm. um, which went on a bit too long, possibly, but still had that same premise. Anyway, on that glowing recommendation from all three <laughs> of us, um, go henceforth to iPlayer and, and listen to In The Flesh.
0: So I'm Tom Getty, I'm culture editor of The New Statesman, and I've got Mark Haddon here on the line. Uh, Mark has written us... A terrific story for our spring book special issue it's called The Pier Falls and it's a very detailed almost reportage style description of a pier, a British seaside pier in 1970 um, collapsing and the, the events that unfold around that Mark when I first read this I had to actually break off and google it because even though I, was, I wasn't aware of any such incident having happened, it was written in such a sort of detailed and realist style that I, I wondered whether this was a real incident, but it's not. It's completely invented.
1: It, yeah, it's completely invented, but it happens to... Well, I say it happens to a real peer. It's, it's me going back to my childhood holidays in Brighton. Um, every year, uh, my sister and I will be sent to spend a week with our paternal grandparents, who were there for a fortnight, and uh, we spent the second half of the week with them doing an old-fashioned working-class summer holiday—you know, fish and chips in restaurants with photo murals of Austrian castles on the wall, playing crazy golf, riding the, the little train up to Hove—and for the rather perverse reason, I thought I'd go back to my childhood, and rather rather than polish it and revere it and and hold it up as something rather golden I th- which most people do i thought i'd just go back and do completely the opposite and in a, in a way just destroy it you know stamp all over it um which turns out to be kind of rather thrillingly enjoyable <laughs> because the first um the opening
0: it does uh, and i'm i'm guessing this is deliberate well you're you're setting the scene before you tear it down but um the opening it very much does evoke though the kind of classic you've got the the bumper cars, you've got the portly woman hammering a windbreak into the sand, you've got the gulls wheeling and crying, you've got the Excelsior, the Camden, the Royal Hotel. The scene the scene is absolutely set for a kind of very nostalgic classic nineteen seventies British seaside scene.
1: <laughs> yes. Um as you were saying that, I just realised that the one well, let's assume, in my mind at least, that it's Brighton. The thing that's missing is, in fact, the the strangest thing from those holidays, the things that I remember most clearly, which I've, I've in fact, written about elsewhere, which was that under the, under the promenade, in one of those little um, semi-circular arches, which I think mostly now contain nightclubs, there was something called the Walter Potter Museum of Curiosity, which was half go- given over to... Um, zoological freaks in these great vats of formaldehyde and half it was given over to his um freakish um, taxidermy. He was a, a famous or infamous taxidermist who used to stuff mostly very small animals and arrange them in these surreal um, tableau under glass. I mean, I remember most vividly a group of squirrels in the back room of a pub, smoking pipes <laughs> and playing cards. And, and one that everyone who remembers who went there is, is the puppy and kitten wedding. Uh, a puppy was being married to a kitten. The puppy was dressed up in a little black velveteen suit. The kitten was dressed in a white lace wedding dress. And the church was filled with puppies and kittens. One side was the puppy family side and they were all dressed in suits and one was the, the kitten family side and they were all dressed as well. It was, looking back, one of the, the strangest, <laughs> most upsetting things I saw in my childhood, although as a child, I just thought it was rather cute. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this this
0: desire to sort of um, take your childhood experience and completely rip it apart, was, were, were those holidays a, a happy memory for you or not? <laughs>
1: They were mostly a happy memory, so so it's not it 's not me going back to a, a, a terrible dark childhood and having my revenge on it. I think overlaid on top of the fact that it 's not what people normally do with the material they get from their childhood was a desire a desire not to be that that nice author mark haddon who who writes books about dogs and <laughs> disabled I mean, I think I think all writers rag around with them uh, a kind of um, one sentence synopsis of, of who they are. Um, I remember quite a long time ago I met Andrea Levy at some prize-giving ceremony and I just, I think, turned down an offer to go and meet the Queen, that was it, as, as, as the recipient of uh, the Commonwealth First Novel Award. And um, we met each other and we sort of gave each other a spontaneous hug and she was, she said, I'm really impressed that you did that. I know you was the nice, the nice, that nice man, Mr. Hank <laughs> <laughs> And I think that nice man, Mr. Haddon, has followed me around, and it gave me some joy to do things that that nice man, Mr. Haddon, wouldn't write.
0: <laughs> so were they were they were they surprised when you when you turned down this uh, this offer,
1: being the nice man, Mr. Haddon? No, they were very unsurprised, but they didn't tell me that it, it was a strange story to this this whole award. Um, Carol Phillips won the novel award. And he, for very similar reasons, turned down um, his offer the offer of, of meeting with the Queen, um, as has been done by many, many recipients of the award. Uh, without telling me that the offer was made only to the winner of the Novel Award, um, they took me out to a, to a rather lovely and alcoholic supper. And at the end of the meal, when I was sort of softened up, they said, do you want to come and meet the Queen? And I, I said, as I usually do in these circumstances, let me go away and think about it, and I'll contact you tomorrow. And I said, I've decided for... For many reasons, uh, not to accept your kind of, and not least because if Curious Incident was about anything, it was about the fact that everyone, everyone's experience of the world is, is is equally valid. Everyone should be accorded the same amount of respect. So, I much as much as I might think the Queen is a, a splendid human being, I didn't want to engage in that drama of 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 of, of, of bowing and scraping and, and and acting as if someone is inherently superior. Um, they took that very well. But then subsequently did I find out that the winner of the first novel award is, is never asked to meet the Queen. And I'd only been asked to meet the Queen because Carol Phillips had turned it down. <laughs> so in retrospect, I, I didn't feel guilty at all.
0: <laughs> going back to the story, um, what at what point did you decide that you were going to write it in this very clear, objective, reportage style? You What you do is you have this kind of omniscient viewpoint that you then zoom in on various different moments and and various different victims along the along the pier whereas obviously you know you could have told the story from the point of view of one bystander or or one victim what gave you the idea to to
1: write it from that perspective well, one brutally simple idea is that if you're going to have a large number of people <laughs> die, and you want to see this disaster unfold, you need it to you need to see it from from a godlike perspective. You need to stand back and be able to pick and choose which which images and which actions you want to zoom in on. Also, I think. Um, a understatement ought to really be the, the the default tone for any piece of writing, especially if the content is going to be fairly extreme. Um, I mean, it's ob- it's very obviously true of comic writing, for example. Um, jokes are funnier if you if you tell them as if they're not funny whatsoever. And I think things are things are sad and, and shocking. Similarly, um, to a greater extent, if you if you describe them as if they're not sad or shocking, um, and if you write because if you if you, if you inhabit one of the characters too much, if you put their suffering too much to the forefront, your writing, in a way, becomes needy. It demands a reaction from the viewer. If you understate and stand back, I think the viewer feels able to react in their own way and reaches the end of a story, feeling a sense of ownership they, they don't feel if you try and make them feel in a certain way.
0: One, one thing that... Um, oh, there's various things in the story that obviously place it in the time period of 1970, but um, reading it again this morning, I was struck by um, towards the end, you have the camera crews arriving um, at 5 a.m. Um, and then you have the various people t- getting their photos back from the chemists. Mm-hmm. And it, it, we, we're so used to the way that disasters are covered now in our very instantaneous um, digital news environment Environment um, was that was that at all in the forefront or in the background of your mind as as you were writing it? How how different this would how differently this might play out now?
1: Um, not at all, actually. No, I think um, if you if you if you start a piece of writing trying to get over an idea, and that's what, an example of, of, of uh, one of many ideas I could have tried to get across, I think you run a great risk if you um, if you just create a world and try and describe it as well as you can. Um, you're not imposing on the reader. You're not asking the reader to accept what you think about anything whatsoever. You're not not asking them to accept any of your opinions, and I think that makes them far more at ease. Um, but they still go away with something of of, of your view of the world. Um, but they'll go away with opinions on the, of their own about what they've just experienced. And they might often disagree amongst themselves, but I think that's often a measure of a good piece of writing. If, if people can have two diametrically opposed experiences, having read the same few pages. The um, To go back to the photographs, I, increasingly, and I, I wonder how many people have this experience, I get very tired of, 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 of the speed at which we can process pictures and information, and the clarity as well. And as the years go by, I find more and more attraction in... Old photographs, uh, in poorly taken photographs, even in the photographs that you would have thrown away at the time because they were blurred or they had a double <laughs> exposure on them, they have a kind of a magic which increases over the years, and I th- and I think that's shown by the the popularity a of old photographs on sites like you know Retronaut, and all the many apps you can get on your iPhone to, to make your yeah, absolutely di- digital pictures look as if they come from 1955. The um, the description of
0: of of the pier itself collapsing. Um, You're very specific in in terms of sort of number of rivets and failing and and steel girders and the the torque of the metal and explosion of the windows. Is that um, purely from imagination or did you go away and do a bit of research on that?
1: No, it's purely from imagination. I'm, I mean, I'm infamous for doing no research whatsoever. Um, and I have yet to be, I to be proved wrong. Um, if I was doing a historical novel, obviously I would, ha- I would have to do research. Um, as I'm always telling students when I'm teaching creative writing, which I do every so often, making something convincing has got almost nothing to do with making it true. If, 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 if you can grab the reader's attention and hold it, and make them feel looked after and entertained, they will believe almost anything.
0: I expect this is probably just a coincidence but I wonder if it crept into your mind the um of course the uh, brilliant adaptation of your book Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime there was an incident last year in the theater where uh, um part of the theater collapsed um did that was that at all in in your
1: mind when when writing this No it wasn't I mean because it's because it a very different thing I mean I remember looking on with horror uh, I was probably listening with horror I think I heard about it over Twitter that night um, and the initial report suggested that a balcony had collapsed which would have been an absolutely horrific event and then you know I think would 40 50 people would have died and it took about half an hour to an hour to realize that horrible as it had been for the people in there it wasn't it wasn't quite the disaster that we that we thought to begin with Um so, so it's something on, a diff- something on a different scale altogether.
0: Okay. Well, um, thanks very much for talking to us, um, Mark Haddon. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you.
2: I'm joined by a tech writer, Ian Stedman, to talk about wearable technology, um, so first of all for people who don't know this kind of stuff what what counts as wearable technology wearable
5: technology i guess most broadly i mean obviously it's something you wear but think and of it's it, technology yes <laughs> but think of it as uh it's the next step after smartphones we've kind of reached this stage where we have computers in the palms of our hands that have lots of apps and lots of functions that can do lots of things but those functions and apps are going to start to spread to things like wristwatches or google glass which is like quite a prominent famous uh, example of that which is eyeglasses that have a little screen in the corner that um, shows you things like emails and Twitter updates and lets you take photos and all kinds of things Um, and even down the line there's going to be things like embedded technology like um, do you remember Black Mirror? Mm-hmm. Um the episode with Charlie
2: Brooker's satirical TV. Yeah, show. where
5: everyone had, there was the episode, I think it was the best one, where um they had the uh computers in their eyes that could record everything they ever saw. So then they didn't really have to like they could relive memories again and again by literally rewatching what they saw. Um
2: see I have this theory that actually that that's like being shackled to a kind of well, sorry, there's a I think there's a Martin Amis line about it, libido like being shackled to an idiot. But um it's kinda like being shackled to an idiot because I actually don't think people want that perfect a recall of things that happen. I think you think you do, but you don't. Yeah,
5: the, it's a it's a good point. A lot of people probably won't like it. I mean, it's, it's a dystopian science fiction TV show exploring the issues around it. So it might not be exactly expressed in that way in society when it becomes a mainstream product. But we do have Google Glass, which um, I guess it's most prominent. Uh, it's most successful thing is to create, uh, inspire the creation of the word glasshole to describe people who um, evangelize about it.
2: So there's been Um, a spate of kind of people having them knocked off their faces and stolen and stuff like that in in San Francisco and the West Coast.
5: Yeah, there's this this strange thing having... Google Glass isn't on general sale. Yesterday, Google did a one-day sale where anyone could buy it, which was the first time they're doing that. But until now, it's only been available through um, what they call its Explorer program, which is for people who are... I kind of
2: already hate this. Yeah,
5: kind of devs or or they want to kind of explore the possibilities and, and things and the they thought
2: people, imagineers
5: they're the kind of people who would say that kind of thing or uh, have viral profits people with linkedin profiles you know terrible people um, <laughs> um but they, they they're the kind of people who get really enthusiastic about new technology for the sake of new technology and um there, there was there was a famous case of um a woman in california was driving while wearing google glass and was pulled over and given a speeding ticket and amongst the google glass community the, the reaction was outraged like she. He didn't know she had it turned on it's just a new piece of technology he's just being you know he's um prejudiced against Google Glass owners, whereas everyone else is just like, well she's driving with a computer screen in her face you you don't drive along while watching TV. yeah but I mean I one mean, of the things the about thing. using
2: a mobile phone when you're driving it's not about necessarily about um about the talking to people being bad. Yeah. So it's much worse than talking to people in the car because when you're trying to recall stuff there's a thing called gaze aversion where you try you look up for example when you're trying to remember stuff. So it means that physically you're not looking at the road as the same yeah. as somebody else who wasn't using a mobile phone.
5: Absolutely. Um and there is there are also studies that have shown that even when on hands-free kits for example with phone calls, just the fact of talking to someone mm. who while well, not looking at them or whatever, that does reduce your ability to drive slightly. Um, but I think a
2: lot of this comes down to a big kind of philosophical question about impermanence and about how much we rely on things being impermanent. I mean, you know, I've mm. talked previously about things like Snapchat, kind of trying to restore the feeling that you just essentially do gestures, that you share moments with people, but they're not necessarily worthy of being kind of memorialised yeah. and, and inscribed forever on the internet, never to be shut off. And I think there is a really big issue about the fact that in order to exist as human beings, we need to be inconsistent and we need to yeah. kind of grow and change. And you know, don't nobody I don't think it really helps people having to explain things that they thought ten or twenty years ago. Um yeah. and that is a that is a really big challenge, which is makes me think that I hope that Google Glass in a way doesn't catch on. Mm. Because I don't th- A I mean I, I know, I have now have more photos than I ever ever look at. Yeah. And I just think I don't need hours of footage of my lunch going into my mouth.
5: Mm. Well, you. Yeah, in the future, we might have computers that have algorithms that can decide for you which of the thousands of hours of footage that you take with your glasses, the stuff that you should keep, for instance. Um, there are all kinds of things happening. happen. I, I kind of wonder if maybe in the future when we get uh, like a black mirror type situation where we get everything, um, you know, have embedded technology and everything where we can... You know, we have microchips embedded into our skin uh, and things like that. We might look back at Google Glass as being like a quaint, like quite nice thing because, at least with Google Glass, if you see someone with Google Glass, Walking down the street towards you, or recording it, you can take, you can go over and physically take it off them. You can stop them recording you.
2: Mm. Does it have a light that shows when it's recording? Because I yeah, know there was a big discussion about the fact that it you does. Should, because even, I mean, you know, as journalists, you know that you can't record generally record people without their permission. You should always, when you're doing a phone interview, for example, make it very clear that you're recording people. So yeah. occasionally you are allowed to subterfuge for kind of public interest purposes, but generally it's pretty frowned on. Too yeah. And then this has been, again, coming back to the women eating on Tube's Facebook group, yeah. the whole idea of, of of kind of taking people's, you know, even when they are technically in public, and and, tra- and yanking that and transposing it to a different context. Yeah. Is something that we're really going to have to wrestle with in the next kind of
5: Absolutely. decade
2: or so. But um, I will say a word in defense of wearable technology, because I've been wearing a wearable fitness band since January. Yes, you have. And... It's I don't think made me appreciably more of an asshole than I was before. Mm. Whether that's the, a ringing the, there are or gonna not.
5: be lots of situations where wearable technology makes a lot of sense. Like Google Glass is incredibly useful, you can imagine, for imagine having a, a surgeon who ha- is wearing Google Glass and he can have a more experienced colleague in his ear watching exactly what he sees and describing what he should be doing instead. Mm. Or um you could have a uh, you know, a, a supervisor on a Factory production line, who the computer can spot things yeah. going wrong, or in Antarctica. Yeah, yeah, there are all kinds of awesome uses for it. It's whether it goes that kind of widespread. Every other person on the tube has one, like we see right now, where in like it, it took le- like less than two years for everyone to go from reading books and newspapers on the tube to reading their phones. It was quite a shocking, startling change. Yeah, um, uh, that might not happen the same way.
2: Is there anything that's currently on the market of wearable tech that you would wear that you would want to buy? That I would
5: wear uh, no, there isn't. A, a lot of actually a lot of that is, as well is is aesthetic. Like smartwatches are really ugly. The fit the fit bands, the things that you have um they're quite nice and sleek. But you look at things like pe- even like Pebble which had um quite a big Kickstarter several million dollars for this smartwatch that was going to connect to iPhones. Um, Samsung's been really pushing their Galaxy Gear smartwatches. There are all these massive clunky things that look like those huge Casio watches from the 80s, but worse. Um, Isn't and- that
2: retro now, though? Is that not, not cool?
5: <sighs> Only some things go retro. I don't think that's working. Okay. What, what actually looks to be more interesting is that existing watchmakers who know how to make nice, sort of attractive pieces of jewellery, effectively... Are now integrating things like GPS into their watches mm. bit by bit, instead of starting with a, uh, with the idea of here's a massive computer, let's just stick it to your wrist.
2: Well, this is what I like. So I have a, a thing called a Misfit Shine, which is not one of the better known fitness bands. There's the Jawbone, is the one that George Osborne has, and yes. therefore everybody knows about. Um, I think Alan Rusbridge, the editor of Guardian, also has one. Um, but, um, yeah, so uh, w- this one, it, I think it was described by my boyfriend as looking like what Apple would do if they did a wearable fitness mount because it's yeah. very subtle. It's only um, a disc, a kind it of, uh, looks like a kind of brushed aluminium disc yeah. uh, with a watchdog with essentially 12 dots around it. And it tells you if you w- you've set a target of how much you're supposed to walk or run a day and it will give you a number of dots indicating how close you are to that goal. It's been useful in the sense it has reminded me to get up and actually walk places rather than yeah. jumping on the bus and just thinking that, you know, i being and, and also just giving you a bit of a kick in the sense of going, like, you really haven't moved that far today. If you do this every day you'll just transpose you know, into mm. that fat vampire from play <laughs> which is always my, my worry about these things. So I yeah, I I like this, but I agree with you. I wouldn't want something I wouldn't want to wear Google Glass because it looks so much, it screams, Hey, look at me. Yeah. I'm so I'm wearing Google Glass in the same way that you know, having that really cutting edge tech is, is often try sort of marks you out as a somebody who cares about that, yeah. which is not in itself very cool.
5: Mm. Um, one application where it could be quite useful is with the police, though, because um, today uh, Sir Bernard Hogan Howe. Yeah, Hogan Howe. Um, yeah, the Met Police has said that they're going to start in the next few weeks a trial with the Met Police. Uh, a few hundred officers are going to be, when they're on their beats or whatever, they're going to have um, lapel cameras which record what they're doing the idea being that um it kind of it's it's not so that so much that the police can watch you or us in the street it's to keep an eye on the police um it was trialed um a lot of people have been saying that to to crack down on um all those mysterious cases where people die in custody and Mm. the tape goes missing and all that kind of thing um or people get beat in the street or when it's like you get uh cases where it's like an altercation happens where it's basically an officer's word against the person yeah um you end up with a lot of um corruption and it erodes confidence in the police um they tried this in a a city called rialto in california and it 80 percent drop in complaints against police and these are just little like cameras like gopros but smaller that are embedded in the uniforms that are recorded everything that they did um but I think that
2: makes a lot of sense. Although one of the things that I know has been a problem in London you'll hear photographers complain about is the police really not like being photographed and videoed themselves. No, even no. though if you're in a public place, that's you know, yeah. you have an absolute right to, to take photos. That
5: one of my worries is with I, I I'm quite sceptical of a lot of the police, frankly. Um and I, I, I worry that I mean, Hogan has said that the police officers will have the option of turning off and on as and when they see fit, which undermines the entire point of it. Um, but even beyond that, I kind of see it as I worry that there are a lot of minor offences which are very stupid, which at the moment officers have the discretion of ignoring. Um, but if it's on tape, they might not have the choice of not prosecuting you for it, you know? Um, yeah, I it,
2: hope it doesn't erode the kind of idea that common sense. So if you're doing crowd policing and someone does one minor infraction, yeah. think, well, actually... Is it worth taking that officer off the street to deal with that when there's going to be something much more serious happening? Yeah.
5: And there's also the issue of uh, where does the footage go? You know, like it could be recorded, but does it have to then go back to the station and be put onto a computer? Like who's in charge of that computer? Surprisingly
2: quickly adapted the idea of CCTV being everywhere, which when it came in was an an enormous, people felt that there was a real kind of surveillance society. That's
5: that's true, but CCTV is, I mean, the, the UK has by far the highest cctv usage per capita um it is ridiculous and there's very little statistical evidence that it contributes to the reduction in crime Mm. um it's it is useful in solving some crimes but very few Mm. really um it's very much overrated it's it's part of that whole kind of idea of security theater it makes you feel safer it gives the illusion of safety a lot of the cctv cameras you see walking around the city like london aren't plugged in or if they are they don't record the footage for like more than an hour or something or they don't really abide by data protection laws or anything like that it's it's they don't really care about that the the only point is like there's a camera pointing here it just gives people away but to
2: bring that back to kind of our ideas about tech that's kind of funny because there is such a a, a divide in how we feel about the idea of a surveillance society so it's been notable how little the guardians revelations about the nsa that yeah by Edward Snowden have been picked up here much bigger response in europe and in america and I think there's a general feeling here of kind of, you should see the amount of information people freely give away about themselves on Twitter yeah. or Facebook. You know, they're doing a very good job of self-surveillance. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and it's I think it's, it, it's one of those things, I think that people, unless they see the downside really clearly, unless you can point to an, a, 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 an abuse of the system, obviously, mm. it's hard to make people care yeah in the same way that we had this debate about id cards and a lot of people said well if you've got nothing to hide yeah I, I think that
5: that's a very british mindset is that kind of deferential wells someone they, they they probably know best you know it's and if it's not impacting directly on me it doesn't really matter yeah. so which is really dangerous
2: well on that note if anyone wants to see all the logs of how far i've walked in the last four <laughs> months they are very welcome to some of them are quite impressive others less so um but on that note i'll say thank you ian thanks you've been listening to the new statesman podcast you can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on itunes our theme music is taken from devil with the devil by the underscore orchestra licensed under creative commons and we're produced by philip Morn.